and I think a champion, they just want to answer that question. They just want to see how good they can be. They don't get caught up in arbitrary times or what other people think or in amateur runner terms, what the Boston qualifier is for their particular age group. They, 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 they just don't, they don't think that way. And a lot of people do, and a lot of people are wired that way. But a champion just wants to get the most out of themselves. And they enjoy the hardest parts of training and racing. That, that's really a champion. What's up, everyone? It's your host, Mario Fraioli, and we are trying something a little different this week. On the other side of the mic for this introduction is Chris Douglas, my right-hand man and sponsorship director for The Morning Shakeout. I've never admitted this publicly, at least not on this podcast, but my least favorite thing to do for the podcast is the introduction and the sponsorship reads because it's just me staring at a computer screen, reading off a script to make sure that I don't forget anything that I'm supposed to say. So I'm bringing Chris in for this one so we can have more of a conversation about the upcoming episode, what it's about, and what you can look forward to in it. Also to talk about the sponsors for this episode, and then we'll get right into it. But Chris, thank you so much for joining me in this little introduction experiment. No worries. Happy to be here. What do we got on tap for this week? Yeah, well, uh, we have a really cool interview this week where you interviewed Matt Fitzgerald and Ben Rosario around the topic of, of Matt's new book, which is called run like a pro even if you're slow and this is a, I actually thought this was a super interesting discussion because it's sort of like a coach's corner where you and ben are really going into it and then you have matt there who's kind of like flying the wall the subject of 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 the book and, and his his experience essentially working out with the naz elite group um yeah it was super cool yeah this was a different podcast episode from what I typically record week in and week out is definitely more of a coach's corner discussion because I insert myself into the conversation more than I, I typically do. I normally try to be a setup man and I was definitely that in this conversation. But because of the things that we were talking about, many of which were coaching and training related, and that is how I spend a lot of my working time, I, I interjected where I thought it was appropriate. And just to give a little context, so Matt Fitzgerald, very well-known and prolific author of endurance sports books, former colleague of mine, actually at the competitor group, we had desks next to each other in 2010 and 11 when we were both working in San Diego, wrote this book, Run Like a Pro, Even If You're Slow. It was just released, and it's, it's based on the time that he spent in Flagstaff training with Northern Arizona Elite in 2017 leading up to the Chicago Marathon. And, and I should take that back a little bit. He actually published a book before this one, which was called Running the Dream. And that was more kind of a memoir of like, hey, this was my experience running and training with a professional group leading up to the Chicago Marathon. And, and this is more like what's in it for the reader's practical takeaways for amateur age group runners who are are looking to train more like a pro. And really, I think what they try to do in this book is knock down 
these these walls that seem to exist for for a lot of amateur runners who look at pros and say I've got nothing in common with them. Um, you know, we train very differently. Like what they're doing, what and what I'm doing are, are two totally different things. And they show like, no, it's not. It's actually there are much more similarities than there are differences. The only real differences are maybe the paces that you're running. And then obviously, and this goes for any runner, just individual differences in, you know, training volume, how you structure your workouts, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I think anytime there's, there's just, I think people have the perspective that elites are just like, you know, aliens from another planet, that there's no way you can do what they do. And I think Ben and Matt really highlight how, yeah, I mean, there, there's some talent there, some genetic gifts, but it's really, it's all about pacing. It's about doing the little things right. And, and yeah, I, I thought that a lot of the points were really well taken and just super interesting to kind of be a fly on the wall and like hearing top coaches talk, um, you know, you and Ben sort of chatting about Matt's progress and then Matt talking about as, as the coachee, you know, how he just learns a lot and a lot of these things that were sort of he had sort of mystified what would it be like to work with Ben were just, you know, his goals were just really, really different than when in reality they needed to be. And I thought that was a really interesting conversation. Yeah. And just to kind of hit some specific points, we talk about training, mileage, intensity, types of workouts, how to structure those things, recovery. We talk about diet. And I thought one of the most fascinating parts of the conversation is actually a through line in this conversation. And this is something that I have noticed with the athletes that I work with because I coach a pretty wide range of athletes from competitive age groupers to very high level elites, folks who are qualifying for the Olympic trials marathon to some top ultra runners. And I mean, I've, I've noticed in my coaching, one of the biggest differences between the, the elites and the age groupers are that the elites are much more relaxed about their their pursuit and the the theme that ran through this conversation matt talked a bit about it ben talked about it as well it's just to chill out <laughs> like really yeah. what it comes down to is just chill out um yes work hard but chill out a lot of amateur age group runners tend to be just a little more uptight about all these things or focusing on the wrong things and i thought matt and ben did a great job of helping to just kind of like knock that down and really give amateur age group runners the permission to just just relax a little bit in the pursuit of their dreams definitely just like the idea of having balance you know eating well being patient sort of trusting the process. Yeah, it was it was really interesting to hear. I you know, uh, in the interview Matt talks about that he's rooming with one of uh one of the pros on the team and it's just surprised that he's just, you know, eating super healthy, hanging out in his recovery boots, taking 2-hour naps, which I thought was amazing. I'm trying to tell my wife to let me take 2-hour <laughs> naps because it's important for my training. Uh yeah, it was it was it was cool. It was definitely again, it felt like you were just like a fly on a wall to this really interesting process that has this sort of like mysticism around it because you look at the leads and you think you, you know, there's no way I'm running like a two hour, you know, two hour and 20 minute marathon, but the process is really the same for everybody. 
Yeah. And then Ben actually showing the other side of that, talking about Steph Bruce and Kellen Taylor and Alephine Tuliamuk in particular, who are all moms, have young kids, can't nap in the afternoon, don't mm -hmm. get to sleep eight or nine hours straight at night, which is very relatable to a lot of amateur age group runners. And these are some of the best runners in the country. I mean, Alephine won the Olympic trials and yeah. made the Olympic team in 2020. I mean, granted, that was pre-baby, but still, I mean, she's getting back to that point where she's going to be competing at a high level. I mean, Steph Bruce has two little kids. This is her last year of competitive running. She's in her late 30s at this point. And she's running better than ever before. Um, and just showing that, you know, those things aren't excuses. It is possible to live a quote unquote normal life and have a champion's mindset, which is something that Ben talked about and really see what is possible for yourself as a runner. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. It was a, it was a great conversation. I mean, I think another point that was real interesting to me was, and you've talked about this on multiple podcasts, idea of that there isn't a magic number in terms of mileage. It's just high mileage. It's whatever's right for you. But what was new for me in this conversation was when Ben was talking about like, he can probably handle more mileage than you think if you're mm -hmm. increased conservatively, you're following a good plan and you're doing all the little things to make sure that, that you can um, sort of progress well rather than just being like, I guess I got to crush 100 hour, you know, 100 mile weeks, because that's what the pros do. You know, that's, for me, that'd be a recipe for immediate injury. Uh, but but yeah, I, I just thought, you know, I, I'd never thought about it in sort of that nuanced way, which was really interesting. Well, let's leave it at that. I don't want to give away the entire conversation. It was a great <laughs> one. A lot of incredible takeaways. So just listen to it. Uh, I also want to be mindful of everyone's time here and not go too long with the introduction. But before we get into the conversation I had with Matt Fitzgerald and Ben Rosario, I would like to thank the sponsors that helped to make this episode possible. Chris, uh, you are the sponsorship director. You manage a lot of these relationships for me. Who do we have sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast? Well, we have three awesome sponsors this week. The first one is Tracksmith, which is a longtime sponsor of the show. We both love their products and mm -hmm. uh, they got they got some new stuff coming up, which is great. Yeah, I mean, Tracksmith, as many of you know by this point, is an independent running brand that is inspired by a deep love of the sport. They're based in Boston, which is where I'm from. I have been a big fan of the brand since they launched. Um, if you have seen photos of me running at all in the past three, four years, I'm almost always in Tracksmith apparel. Uh, it's really high quality stuff. It's super durable. Um, it's just it's unmatched. I mean, I, I don't think there is better running apparel out there. And, you know, right now they have their spring collection out. It's got a lot of staples that are like thoughtfully designed for this season of the year from the session shorts, which are one of my favorites. I wear those for easy runs, long runs, uh, track workouts. They're, they're super versatile. They have this like silky soft, like stretch knit. Um, they have these Merino shirts, short and long sleeve, which are moisture wicking temperature regulating. They don't smell when you sweat in them. Uh, I mean, just check it out. They've got they've got a lot in the lineup. The Reggie half tights, which are a favorite of mine. Uh, they have lined and unlined versions. I mean, once you go lined, I've said this before, you'll never go back. Uh, you have a built-in liner for these half tights. They're great. They keep the hamstrings covered. They're awesome on those cool days. You put them on, you just feel fast. You want to run fast. I mean, they're my favorite racing tights. So give those a try. Um, for the ladies out there, the Lane 5 short tight. My wife loves them. Uh, they have a zipper pocket in the back. Uh, similar to the the Reggie half tight for men I think they're like three maybe they're four inches I'm not to, I'm not totally sure but it is like a half tight type of 
tight for the ladies. Um, give that a look on tracksmith.com. The other thing I'll say is if you'll be in Boston this year, the race is April 18th, Monday, April 18th. Um, I will be in town the entire weekend. I'll be leading a shakeout run on Saturday, April 16th at 9 a.m. from Tracksmith Track House, which is on 285 Newbury Street, right in the heart of downtown. Uh, they'll have their Boston collection in the shop there. You can check it out. Go to Tracksmith dot com look for all of the boston weekend activities i believe you do need to rsvp for that ahead of time it'll be april 16th at 9 a.m i'd love to see you share some miles together so please join me for that um, but if you're going to buy something off of tracksmith's website tracksmith.com and when you check out use the code mario22 that's mario22 you'll get free shipping on your order and this is super cool five percent of your purchase will go to the Tracksmith Foundation. And that is an organization that Tracksmith founded just in the last few months. I chose that to be my beneficiary. And what the Tracksmith Foundation does is it creates more opportunities for people to participate in track and field. Um, that is very generally what they are about. They're gonna be helping um, collegiate programs not not get cut. Uh, Russell Dinkins, who I had on the podcast not that long ago, is the organization's executive director. Go listen to that conversation. They're also working to create opportunities for youths, underprivileged people, and just really to bring track and field to as many people as possible. It is a life-changing sport. It has changed my life, and I love what the Tracksmith Foundation is doing. So I feel really proud that 5% of your purchases using that code Mario22 will go to the Tracksmith Foundation and help that cause. I love it. I love it. I can even give a mini testimonial. Uh, I did the LA Marathon a few weeks ago, and I was wearing my Reggie lined half tights. Thank you, Mario, for the recommendation. They were great. But what saved me, because it was super cold in the morning at Dodger Stadium, was a Brighton base layer that I just wore on top of my singlet. Yeah, great piece. Saved my race. Saved my race. I, I mean, I, I already love that that article of clothing. I'm going to get another one because it, it's like it was perfect. It was perfect. Who else do we have supporting this episode of the show? Well, we have a sponsor that I'm very excited about, Precision Fuel and Hydration. They just recently rebranded. So if you've heard of Precision Hydration, now they're Precision Fuel and Hydration, and you'll about to hear why. Because they have expanded their line from only hydration products to include fuel. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, last fall training for the Boston Marathon, the Precision Fuel and Hydration gels are incredible. Um, I will use them whenever I am training for longer races. Again, I'm not right now, uh, but that is what I used for Boston last year. Um, great, provided me steady energy throughout in training and racing. I mean, their, their fueling products and hydration products are absolutely second to none. Um, what you can do is go to precisionfuelandhydration.com, use their free online sweat test and quick carb calculator. I did this uh, to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs during training and racing. And then you can book a free one-on-one -on -one video consultation with their team. Talk to an actual human being about your specific uh, fueling and hydration and electrolyte needs, and they'll help you get dialed with the products that you need. Um, awesome team over at Precision Fuel and Hydration. Andy Blow, who is one of the founders of Precision Fuel and Hydration, I had on the podcast 
at least a year ago, within the last year or two, just search Andy Blow, uh, the Morning Shakeout podcast, and he talks all about how he founded the company basically to solve some of his own problems. Uh, they are just really, really good. The products are super solid. Um, I can't stress how important and valuable it is to get this stuff dialed, especially if you're training for longer races, where these things are big factors as to whether or not you have good day or not really i mean it's totally. you know it's it's often said in in triathlon i know we're mostly runners here but the fourth discipline is um is fueling and and hydration but i think that goes for half marathon marathon and ultra distance training as well um, i've personally been a devotee to ph's products for a few years now before they even had any fueling products i use their uh, hydration products to preload and make sure that my electrolyte needs were taken care of before I'd go out for a long training day or a race. Uh, so I would definitely check it out yourself. As a listener of this show, you can get 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products by using the code TMS22, that's capital T, capital M, capital S22, when you check out at precisionfuelandhydration.com. Do it. It'll change your life. <laughs> I think we've got one more sponsor for this episode and it's a new one if i'm not mistaken yeah we have the wine shine half marathon so the wine shine half marathon and 3.9 miler which is That's right a brand new event it's organized by the fine folks at the nonprofit napa valley marathon and half marathon uh takes place in napa california not far from where chris and i live it takes place on July 16th this year, 2022. And most people might look at that and say like, oh, half marathon in July. Like, I, no, that's like heat of summer. No, in Napa, you get these nice, cool mornings. Conditions will be as close to ideal as you could imagine. It's not going to rain that time of year. So great morning to run a half marathon. And then you get to spend the rest of your weekend in Napa, which is one of the most beautiful places in the entire country. Registration is now open at wineshinehalfmarathon.org. And I emphasize the .org because if you put .com, it's not going to work. But this is a <laughs> nonprofit. Uh, and all of the proceeds go to a great cause. And that is the Napa Firewise and Napa Valley Farmworker Foundations. So your registration fee is going to support those foundations which make a big difference in this area so go to wineshinehalfmarathon.org and enter the code mario that's my name m-a-r-i-o all caps when you check out and you'll get 15 bucks off of your registration yeah it's a great event it's a great location and yeah if you've never been in napa you should go <laughs> yeah it'll, it'll be an awesome weekend i mean the the folks at blistering pace race management put on this event as well they also put on napa valley marathon half marathon and a ton of other events throughout the area and there are no better race organizers here than that crew and you will have an amazing experience um knock out this half marathon spend the rest of your weekend in the napa valley uh who knows if i'm around i may be there um TBD on that, but check it out, wineshinehalfmarathon.org. 
Use the code MARIO at checkout, M-A-R-I-O, all caps, and save 15 bucks off your registration. Uh, That is it for the intro. A bit longer than we usually go. We'll try and tighten it up for next time, but let us know what you think. Hit us up on social media at The AM Shakeout. You can also send me an email directly at Mario at TheMorningShakeout.com. Let me know what you think of this new format, but... Let's get into this uninterrupted conversation with the coach of Hoka Northern Arizona elite, Ben Rosario, and prolific endurance sports author, Matt Fitzgerald. First question that I want to throw at you guys and I'm going to throw it to Matt first, just because I know you so well, and you've written I don't know how many books at this point, and you are not only the most prolific author that I know, but the most prolific idea guy that I know. <laughs> so when did the idea for this new book, Run Like a Pro, Even If You're Slow, come to be? I recall exactly. As a matter of fact, um, I spent 13 weeks in Flagstaff in the summer of 2017 um, training with Ben's team, living and training with Ben's team. And you know, I, I planned to write a book about that experience. And I I wanted it to be completely narrative in in uh, composition. You know, I, I didn't want it to be a how-to book. I just wanted to, to tell the story of my experience. But I figured that you know, readers, it's the old what's in it for me question. Like, you know, most people who are going to read that type of book are runners themselves. They're looking to improve. They're always on the hunt for tips. And and so I thought there might be a little bit of dissatisfaction with, you know, even if they enjoyed the story, they might come away thinking, yeah, but how do I, you know, you know, do what you did? Um, So I thought there should be a follow-on book that does, that has the prescriptive element. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's how I that's how I came to peace with the, the, the decision to make the first book, which ended up being titled Running the Dream, just mm-hmm. completely narrative. Ben, did Matt approach you right away with the idea for these two books? I mean, obviously, you knew he was going to write the first one, Running the Dream. He was going to be spending, I mean, 13 weeks with your team, living, training, preparing for the Chicago Marathon that fall of 2017. Did he throw this other one to you at the time? Like, hey, I'm going to get this narrative out of the way first, and then I'd like to tackle a tactical how-to book that the average runner can apply to their own lives. No, he didn't do it right away. I, I think it was just like he said. He came to me with the idea for the narrative book, Running the Dream, and you know, I loved the idea and said yes, and, and we got that going. But then, as I remember it, it wasn't too long into his stay in Flagstaff when he was uh, indeed living the dream and, and uh, running with us every day and, and, you know, becoming a member of the team. Uh, that's that's when I remember him coming to me about, about this book. I, I remember him saying, we, we definitely need to write a book together uh, at some point. What's the most common misconception that amateur age group runners have about their professional counterparts? I would say that, I mean, Matt usually has a good answer to this one, but they, they probably just, just straight away think that they can't do the things that pros do. 
Um, and of course, that's the misconception. I mean, that's a very broad answer, but it, it covers a lot of the, the things that they just assume that pros can do that, that they can't. But in fact, and of course, I mean, I believe you see this in the book, a lot of what the pros do is the the little things, uh, eating right, uh, recovery, um, being calculated about um, form drills and um, again, all the little ancillary things. And, and the fact of the matter is anybody can do those things and they'll make anyone better. And that's really the gist of the book. For me, it's a, there's a long list <laughs> of misconceptions, um, many of which I was aware of before I got there. But there were still some surprises for me. Um, I remember getting, you know, well into the experience before I just had this aha moment when I realized that uh, of the, you know, 13 members of the group, including me, I was the most uptight member of the group. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that speaks to the way Ben uh, recruits and, you know, because he's a big chemistry guy, a big culture guy, and maybe there are more uptight pros out there that he doesn't want on the team. But that was pretty eye-opening. Like, I was struck that these folks were, I mean, they were passionate and they were intense, but they were also kind of chill and balanced. You know, they, they didn't really sweat the small stuff to the degree that, that I myself as an amateur runner did. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that because in my own coaching experience, that's probably the number one thing that I tell my my pure amateur age group runners is just to chill out and relax a bit. And that's something that I've learned from the pros and elites that I've worked with. They work hard. They are very intentional with everything that they're doing. They take their pursuit seriously, but they also, for the most part, know when to just let certain things go. And I don't know if that's just an amateur age group thing, if it's, you know, mostly at a, an American cultural thing. I think we tend to be like, you know, a bit uptight. Uh, the type of personality that running tends to attract, like type A, very like, you know, detail dialed type of thing. But usually that's the unlock for a lot of amateur age group athletes is when they learn to relax a little bit or, you know, to let go of, I need to be at this exact pace or this exact heart rate, or, you know, what does my whoop say that my recovery score <laughs> is like, you know, so on and so on and so forth is when they get over that hump and finally make the breakthrough that they've been trying to for a long, long time. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I, cause Obviously, off the top there, I said there's all these little things that they do, but I think what's Matt, what Matt is alluding to is they don't, it becomes a part of their life and they don't sweat it in, in the way he's describing it. They, they mm -hmm. just do it. They just do it. It just becomes a part of their life. And, it, and I hope eventually that's what the book can do for people is, yeah, it takes a little bit of time to incorporate these things. But once you do, they're just a part of your routine and you just do them and you don't have to make, make them um, uh, these grandiose things that are bigger than they are. Yeah. And I think for a lot of age group runners as well, they're looking for the formula and they want to get each element of the formula exactly perfect. And in their mind, if things don't go perfectly, if I, if I, you know, don't hit the 70 mile a week, if I, if I don't have like the recovery score, you know, that I need like, Oh, it's all out the window. Like it, it's not going to happen. And, 
you know, professionals realize that's just part of the process of, of being a runner. Like not everything is going to go to plan and you've got to be okay with that. You've got to be adaptable. And I think that's something I want to touch on later in this conversation. It's just adaptability, um, you know, between professionals and, and more amateur age group runners. And that's really like the, the piece that holds a lot of people back. Yeah, agreed. I mean, you know, my answer was true to character because I'm I'm just fascinated by the psychological dimension of the sport. And, um, you know, as I mentioned in the book, I'm kind of in this unique position. You know, Mario, I think you're in a very similar position where I really have one foot in both realms, mm -hmm. elite, elite and recreational in a way that that few others do. And if you and if you sort of are straddling those domains in the way I am and you're super interested in the mind, you start to notice these differences. I mean, you can paint with too broad a brushstroke and say, oh, all amateurs are this way right. and all pros are this way. That's not the case. But there are some there are some patterns there and, and they're they're enlightening. <laughs> Let's just go through the book. I think the, the best way to structure this conversation, especially amongst the three of us, is to kind of just take it piece by piece or chapter by chapter and just sort of, you know, talk about one, how you identify these things, um, but then two, what the amateur age group runner can learn from the pros. And I think where we'll start is just planning. And that's the, you know, I think the first like tactical chapter of the book is, is plan like a pro. And in my experience, again, not to paint with too broad of a brush, a lot of amateur age group athletes will, you know, try to dial everything down to like the, the details. And oftentimes you have to, cause there's other logistics and, and stuff like that involved. But, you know, Matt, in, in your experience, the time in the time that you spent in Flagstaff with Ben and his, his group, like from a planning perspective, I mean, you knew you were there for 13 weeks to train for the Chicago Marathon. There were others in the group who were on a similar timeline to you. But from a, a planning perspective, like what were some of the biggest things that may have may have surprised you or helped a light bulb to go off? Well, you know, Ben, ben sat me down um, on day two, I think, in Flagstaff and said, you know, just, you know, just it was like a planning session. You know, he just mapped out, you know, this is how we do marathon training uh, at NAZ. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been a runner my whole life, so there was nothing shocking in that conversation. But it, it was nice to hear just like, you know, that um, he had a way of doing things um, and a lot of experience doing it. Um, and so obviously the details would be fill it, filled in as I went. You know, he hadn't really coach someone quite like me before, you know, older, not elite, injury prone. Um, I guess probably in your experience, Ben, you'd come across someone, but I was a little bit of a unicorn um, for you. And so that was just it. Like the planning was, um, you know, it was, a, it was a framework. It wasn't, you know, I know exactly what you're going to be doing on Wednesday, nine weeks from now. Um, so in terms of like his way of, uh, of doing it, and he started coaching me before I got there just because he wanted me to, you know, be prepared. And, and right. he explained that, that he likes to uh, prepare runners to be sort of jacks of all trade um, in, at, a, at a foundation level, like the well-rounded fitness. So he was throwing a little bit of everything at me in sort of the base or prepar preparatory phase. Um, and then that process sort of continued in my early weeks in Flagstaff where I was just, the workload was increasing, but there was quite still quite a bit of variety 
uh, in the training. And then we made sort of a pivot to uh, marathon focused training where, you know, just everything still may, remained in the mix, but some of the, some of the elements just were pushed to the periphery, like, you know, the really high intensity uh, speed stuff. And I would say that the thing that was very different, cause I had run about 40 marathons uh, when I got there. Right. And the, the big thing that was bit different about the training I did with Ben. And the reason I think it worked so well for me is that there was quite a bit more volume in the kind of moderate range. Everything's from like a critical velocity type of pace up to like a steady state or marathon type of pace, like a lot of like high volume workouts all throughout that moderate intensity range that I just gobbled up and, and clearly benefited me. Ben, from your standpoint, working with Matt for those 13 weeks, I mean, prior to building what you've built with Northern Arizona Elite, I mean, you had coached many sub elites, um, some age group runners through your store in St. Louis. So you, you know, you had an idea like how they approach things differently than than a professional. And in, in this case with Matt, I mean, you had him for 13 weeks building up to this race, a little bit longer because you were given him the pre preparatory stuff beforehand. But like with your squad, I mean, someone comes in and, you know, you're making a long-term commitment to one another. And at the professional level, like many coaches and athletes tend to think in four-year cycles, like, okay, we've got the Olympics every four years, there's world champs two years in between, there's major marathons. And not that you have that all planned out, you know, right away when you take someone in, but you're not also not operating like willy-nilly, like race to race most of the time. Like there is a, you know, there is a bigger picture that you're trying to keep in mind. Was that challenging for you when you take on someone like Matt and you're like, I got him for like, three, four, five months, whatever it is, and we're building for this this one specific day. Um, and I'm also trying to, you know, integrate him into like this this culture of people who, you know, might be trained for the same race, but are also like looking even beyond that to do bigger things. I, I didn't find it too terribly different, it, especially with the marathoners on the team. It's kind of marathon to marathon, you know? We, we don't really think past that next one. Of course, as you say, you know, you know, we're making the decisions on which marathon to run and when to run your first one. And there's a, there's a context to all that. And we are thinking about the long term. But in terms of making Matt's outline, as he described, you know, that, that was just like any, any marathon outline I, I would, uh, I would create. Um, yeah, we only had Chicago in mind, but, but that's the way it is for most of the marathon segments that we do. Um, and to your point about working with other folks over the years, you know, I've always had this philosophy and, 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 you know, of course it comes out in the book, but I've always felt like it's not that different. The outline is really, in my opinion, pretty similar or should be for, for pros and amateurs when it comes to the marathon. Uh, like Matt said, you're, you're touching all the different zones, particularly early on. You're getting a little more specific as it gets into the meat of the training. Um, and then you're, uh, you know, tapering down at the end and, and giving it a go. And I don't mean to make it sound overly simple, but but to me, the differences really between the amateurs and the pros or between Matt and the and the pros I was coaching at the time, Matt could probably attest, was just the pace. <laughs> you know, I mean, Matt, Matt did the same workouts that, you know, Aaron Braun was doing for the most part. Um, you know, he didn't have the same overall volume uh, weekly uh, because Aaron, you know, being a professional, being able to uh, 
you know, have it be his full-time job and being biomechanically super efficient, all the things that make him a pro, you know, he could handle a little more overall volume, but uh, the workouts were very similar. The zones were very similar. It's just the pace is different because he's at a different ability level. Yeah. I, I think to bring this back to, to planning, I mean, and, you know, I'm going to chime in here from my own experience. I mean, regardless of the level of athlete, I mean, you know, you have to accept like where the athlete is at a given time. In, in this case, and, you know, Matt's case, the other athletes you work with, like, figuring out where it is they, they want to go, in this case, Chicago Marathon, and it's like, all right, well, how much, you know, what does he want to do there? Like, what's the goal? And how much time do we have to close that gap um, from where he is to where he, you know, where he wants to be, and then planning it out from there. And, and I'm not sure that, you know, many, many amateur runners, you know, quite look at it that way um you know accepting like you know where they are it's mostly like you know where they where they want to go i've got 12 weeks here's a plan that i you know i pull out of a book and i'm just gonna you know i'm just gonna follow that so i think that's some you know some good insight as far as you know how you how you guys think about just the general like planning you know for an event well you know everything's a prerequisite for the next thing that, 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 that's how I plan it out. And, and um, as, again, Matt can attest, I remember Matt sitting down with you and saying, hey, you know, we're, we're not, because he, of course, he wanted to get into the goal. You know, I want to run under 240. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's not where you are. You know, you have to train where you are. We'll, we'll, we'll make the adjustments to pace along the way. But the outline really was the the workouts and the types of workouts that we were going to do. Um, and, and we were going to start uh, at, at where he was at, which was honestly about a 250 marathoner at, at the time. And that's, an, again, if you want to talk mistakes, that's the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes, which is, hey, I want to break three hours. So boom, they're typing in three hours to all the various calculators, spitting out what you need to do uh, when you're in three hour shape. But they're reading those calculators wrong. They're reading it as I have to do this to run three hours. But those those times are for when you're in three hour shape. And, and if we did anything really right with Matt, we gave him the workouts that were right for him at the time. Yeah. As he graduated along the way, uh, we made adjustments to the pace. The pace picked up. Um, but the worst thing we could have done was just plugged in 240 from the get-go and run repeats that were too hard. Yeah, I think that's I think that's such an important takeaway. I mean, if you if you can't accept where you are, you're just going to get ahead of yourself. And I think we all know, like when you know when that's the case, bad things happen. Uh, injuries <laughs> injuries happen. Uh, you end up plateauing a lot quicker, and you know you're never going to really make any progress because you've put the cart before the horse. I think that's one of the reasons I actually felt so good the whole way through, um, even though I was training a lot. You know, I, I understood what we've just talked about going into it, but it's different when you have a coach. You know, it's like, Matt, this is the pace I'm telling you. <laughs> and so I always felt almost as if my fitness was one step ahead of the workouts I, I was doing, which was a little different from my self-coaching experience. So I just like, I just felt like on top of the work all the way through. Moving on, the next topic I'd like to discuss is mileage. And in my experience as a coach and a journalist, I've seen this as one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about pros, especially when it comes to the marathon. But it's that 
all professional athletes are high mileage runners. And because I'm not as experienced as them, I'm not as fast as them, I don't have as much time as them, I can't run as as much mileage as them. And because of that, like, I don't see any similarities between, you know, me as an amateur runner and this person as a pro. But in terms of thinking about mileage, Ben, as a coach, like when you take on a new athlete, it's not, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. It's not like, okay, we're going to just throw them right up to, you know, a hundred miles a week because that's what our marathoners are already doing or whatever. I mean, it's again, like accepting, you know, sort of like where they are, I guess, how do you think about just managing mileage for your athletes and what can the average runner learn from that? I think you have to assess their biomechanics first um, because some people are uh, built in such a way as to be able to handle high mileage and some people are not. I think foot strike has a lot to do with that. Of course, just injury history uh, anecdotally has a lot to do with that. If you're someone who's gotten hurt a lot, running a lot of mileage, then maybe it's not for you. But but then again, you know, you got to really assess why you got hurt. It might not have been the mileage. It might have been the, the intensity. It might have been the lack of recovery. There's there's all sorts of variables. Um, but to your point, not, not everybody on the team is running the same mileage. And, and I'm not trying to get to a magic amount of mileage. Uh, if there's anything magic, it's, it's the, um, it's the, it's the, it's the magical amount for you, uh, personally. Um, and that might be 65 miles. I mean, I'll just use a couple names of the people on our team right now. Lauren Paquette, who's a veteran who's been around a long time. You would think she's built up over the years, uh, but she actually stays around 65 miles a week. Um, Kellen Taylor, who's been around the same amount of time, they're uh, around the same age. She runs 115, 120 miles a week, Um, but they have different physiology, different biomechanics. Um, I I would say that one thing we learned with Matt and one thing that uh, maybe comes across in the book uh, in in a few different chapters is if you are doing the right things, you probably can handle more easy um, recovering in a, in a calculated way. Uh, And then what Matt said a second ago might even be the biggest, which is the hard workouts need to be actually medium most of the time. Um, and if you do that, you can handle more volume. I, I think Matt was blown away by how much volume he could handle over those 13 weeks, more than he had handled in years and do so actually feeling really good and at altitude on top of that. Matt, going into your experience in Flagstaff, knowing you were going to be training with Ben's group and you know their professionals who are, I mean, are running high mileage. You could see what they were doing before you got there because Naz Elite is so public about their their training. What was your mindset heading into it? You're like, okay, I'm I'm heading like I'm heading for that. Like I'm gonna be running like super, <laughs> you know, super high mileage because I'm gonna be a pro for for 13 weeks. Like were you surprised when you got there? Like just in terms of how, you know, how that mileage was managed. I'd love to just get your perspective on that. Yeah, you know, um, shortly before I first reached out to Ben to you know run this idea by him, I was I had been only running a, a, roughly every other day for years. Um, so you know, I, when I was in my late thirties, I I peaked and I you know I had a couple of training cycles where I was you know in the eighties miles per week, you know some some doubles in there, and you know always had a lot of injuries even when I was actually was doing less. And then I got to a period where um, 
I just decided I can't handle this anymore. And because I, I've, I have a lot of triathlon experience too, like I, I don't have any problem, you know, leaning on cross training to supplement my volume. But, um, so yeah, around that time I was doing a, a, like two thirds of my training was cross training and I was only running every other day. And I, I actually tried an experiment because I wanted to be able to, to see, I'm like, well, let's see, let's see if I can, let's not assume, let's see if I can run every, I can run every day again. And when I first started doing that, I completely fell apart. This is still before I came out to Flagstaff. I, I just, I, I tanked. Um, it was unbelievable. I remember like getting two miles into like what was supposed to be an eight mile easy run and bailing. I, I was like dying at like nine minutes per mile. Uh, turned out I had brought iron deficiency anemia on myself by the kind of like abrupt jump in, in frequency. So, you know, I told Ben, like, here's, I just said, you know, I trusted him as a coach. I wouldn't have chosen his group if I, if I wasn't willing to just completely put myself in his hands, but I wanted him to understand the full picture that, you know, I'm older. I have this injury history. I haven't been able to handle a lot of running in, in, in years. So I just put the, all that on him and let him, uh, you know, decide what to do with me. Um, I was certainly hopeful that I would be able to run a lot in, in Flagstaff, but I wasn't going to assume it, a, a anything. I just thought, you know, if we, if we just go about the process the right way, it'll work out the way it needs to. Ben, how can runners and coaches of runners find that mileage sweet spot for themselves or for their athletes? Over time, you know, they can find it over time. Uh, there, there certainly um, is a process in getting there. And, and I think you want to be conservative uh, in, in finding that out, meaning that it's better to, it's better to go through a training segment for, for a marathon or a half marathon or whatever you're getting ready for, uh, hit that segment, handle the mileage, uh, assess it on the back end uh, as you uh, do sort of a, po sort of a post-mortem and, and then, and then, pick it up a little bit in the next segment and do a little bit more in the next segment, as opposed to, um, you know, trying to find your limits, uh, as you're training for a big event. And, and then, you know, basically, uh, basically trial and error, you know, fa failing and then, and then, and then bringing it back, uh, that can get you in a nasty injury cycle. I'd rather underdo it a little bit and, and move up from there, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, just, hearing a podcast like this, reading a book, getting excited, and then boom, you go from <laughs> miles a week to 100 miles a week because you read somewhere that that's a good idea. Uh, I think it's just a gradual process and, and, and learning what's right for you. How do you think about cycling mileage for your athletes? Or do you cycle mileage for your athletes? Meaning, you know, two weeks like building or up and then one week down? Or do you rather try to hold someone at that sweet spot like something that they can sustain for, you know, five, six, eight weeks at a time. And there's really not much variation there in terms of overall volume. Well, I'd say two things. One, one thing is I, I, I don't look at it as an overall volume number for the week. You know, I, I, I think of it day by day and then I look at what the number is. And if it looks a little too high or a little too low, I might change something, but I think of it day by day. So when I ride a week out, I'm thinking, okay, 10 miles today, I'm talking about pros, you know, 10 miles mm -hmm. a day, 
10-4 double Tuesday. Okay, we'll do a workout on Wednesday. Um, just write the workout. It happens to equal 16 miles on the day or something, let's say. Okay, they better just go eight the next day. Then we can go back to 10-4. You know, I do it like that, and then the, the, the mileage is what it is. Now, it ends up being, I think, pretty similar every week uh, for, for a number of weeks in a row. And then what we'll do is one big down week halfway through a marathon cycle. So we might go six, seven weeks in a row, staying pretty – pretty similar, maybe a day off here and there. So maybe that week was a little easier or a little less volume, I should say. Um, but then that down week is, is meant to kind of absorb the, the first block uh, and then recharge and, and prepare us for the final block. And, and I believe that's what Matt did, although he did have a, a little injury in there that, that was sort of a forced um, uh, lower volume week. But um, yeah, I, I don't think that um, I don't think that I cycle it in, in as calculated a way as, as maybe some, it's more just, uh, cause, cause I, I, I kind of like to live at a certain place. I think that me I like to just be piling up week after week. That's really doable. Uh, again, a little mm-hmm. under maybe the, 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 the pushing of the envelope type of volume. And that way, um, that way you get more work. And I think overall, and then you take that one recharge week, which is also good mentally, by the way, uh, halfway through a segment. And that that's been really, um, really valuable for us. Matt, what were some of your biggest takeaways after your experience training with Ben's group as it related to how you thought about weekly mileage and just volume in general? Because you just mentioned how, you know, prior to starting this buildup, I mean, you were running every other day, you know, you were using a lot of cross training to, you know, sort of supplement that mileage. But once you got to Flagstaff, I mean, you were training like a pro, you were running, you know, every day and it doesn't sound like it was completely smooth sailing. There were some little bumps along the way, but you also, you know, had a huge breakthrough and PR in the marathon. Yeah. The biggest takeaway was, was one that, that, that Ben mentioned already, which was that, um, you know, when, when the big workouts were doable, um, I, I could handle more mileage, you know, not more mileage than I ever had before, but more mileage than I had in a very long time, more mileage than I thought I ever would be able to handle again. Um, and then, um, you know, and then we would do, this was marathon training. So, you know, not 5k, but we, we would do, what was interesting is that, um, there was, there was, there was little distinction sometimes between long runs and workouts. Like, you know, we would do a workout that added up to 14 to 16 miles of running with like with a lot of structure and and intensity in it. And then we would do long runs that had a lot of structure and intensity to them. It's like, well, which one, which is it? And, And like, we were doing that about twice a week. And just in those two days, there was a lot of running. Um, and if, so if you just fill in the rest with doing something every day, lo and behold, you know, it's an 80 mile week or whatever. Um, but again, because, because the, you know, the, the, the individual sessions themselves were pretty manageable. Um, yeah, that, that, that I, I definitely brought home with me that, that approach. What would you say to other amateur runners who are afraid or hesitant to run more mileage for fear of injury, fatigue, or something else going wrong? First things first, you know, like generally, uh, and we say this in the book, most recreational runners are spending too much time unintentionally in the moderate intensity range. Like their their easy runs are not easy enough. 
And those, you know, should account for, you know, about 80% of your, your total weekly volume. So if you're making that mistake, if you're stuck in what I call the moderate intensity rut, then you're probably right. You can't handle more, more volume. Uh, but if you if you shift the intensity balance um, and start doing things more like the pros, 80-20 versus 50-50, the first thing you will notice, and you know, I've heard this time and time again, is like, wow, I feel a lot better, you know, running just as many miles as before. Like I actually feel like I, I could run more um at this point. And, th and then the other thing is, you know, I am a big fan of cross training. So, you know, high volume doesn't have to be all running um you know if you're heavier or older or you, you know you actually for whatever reason you tend to be a little bit injury prone um it's like don't wait until you until you break <laughs> you know to start you know uh, mixing some cycling or elliptical running or whatever it is into the training because uh, quite honestly like you know if you most runners it's it's a high impact sport it's not like cycling and swimming that are non-impact most runners they can't handle as much running. They can't, they can't do enough running to fully saturate their capacity to build aerobic fitness. Like, like, you know, the, the, the so you, if you layer, do whatever amount of running you can tolerate, but go ahead and, and layer some cycling or whatever in on top of that. And there will be benefits. I think this is a, a good place to segue into talking about intensity. You just mentioned, and I mean, you wrote a whole book about this, how 80% of your, overall volume should be fairly easy in terms of intensity it's it's the 20 percent that you know should be quote unquote hard and i mean i see this with a lot of marathoners especially who come to me i mean this is most um i think competitive age group runners are aiming toward half marathon marathon primarily and the the biggest thing I do is just slow them down most of the time uh because if they're you know their marathon pace is seven minutes a mile they're doing easy runs at you know 730 per mile it's like well that's not really an easy run it's that kind of moderate gray zone you know as you had talked about and that's a hard shift i think for a lot of um amateur runners to to make i think it goes back to what we talked about at the top of this conversation it's just learning to relax a bit um and that because you want to improve at this thing doesn't mean you have to go like hard every day and and it's that mindset shift that you know kind of needs to be made along with the you know actual adjustment to like you know training intensity but ben like thinking about just like intensity and balancing it um i'd love to just kind of get your thoughts on how you think about it for your athletes i know it depends like on the on the event but let's just take the marathon to really dial it in i mean matt mentioned how you know before he started training with you guys in Flagstaff for 13 weeks, like you had them doing some preparatory stuff. Like how does that look different than the actual, you know, marathon training itself? And how do you distribute intensity differently depending on where someone is, you know, pre-marathon block and then like in a marathon block? I think that whoever you are, professionally amateur, and of course that's the book, right? We're, we're saying it's not as different as you think it is. Um, so many people run every type of workout a little faster than they should. And it, it does that, that hurts you in a couple of different ways. Um, number one, you can't get as much volume in, in, in a session. And number two, you know, it, 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 
it taps in, it pulls more energy out of you than, than really it should. And, and so it, it, it puts you at risk of kind of going into a negative spiral energy wise, as opposed to, like I was saying before, if you're getting it right, you should be able to go week after week after week after week, solid running, solid running, solid running, building up this huge resume, if you want to think about it that way. And, you know, like an easy example might be so many plans you see online, they're, they're, they're built, they're really just copy and pastes from the last 40 years, you know, that, that thinking that, oh, if we're doing 800s, we should do eight of them. And we should do them at, at our, you know, 10K pace. If we're doing 400s, we should do 10 of them and we should do them at our mile pace. And I would just, I would just say, open up your mind to the possibility of doing 12 800s, but at your half marathon pace, doing 16 400s or 20 400s. And I'm talking about any age group, any level, but doing them at your 15k pace, right? A little slower at a pace you can really master. I thought I thought Matt did a great job of just understanding that we were trying to get him to master being fast and relaxed in total control of your body. We we often as Matt just did a second ago we tell people you've got to run easier on your easy runs, but I say you actually kind of also have to run easier on your hard days, but more mm-hmm. volume. Am I making sense? Yeah. I mean, that, ma- that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I see this with a lot of athletes that I work with. They try to win every workout, right? So if I give them just to use like mile repeats as an easy yep. example, we're going to do six by a mile at seven minute pace with a 400 jog in between. And they're like, okay, that means like to win this workout, I've got to run like 650 or 655. And it's like, no, you're doing the workout wrong. Uh, and, <laughs> and you're actually not going to to get as much out of it as if you would just like stay where you're supposed to be at seven minute pace. It's not about like, you know, winning, you know, winning the workout. And, and in my experience, just being around the sport as a coach and observer of it, I mean, the professionals for the most part, don't look at workouts that way. That's not something to like be one or something to like, okay, well, if coach says run at this pace and I'm going to be like five or 10 seconds faster, like I'm going to do my job as a professional does and run at the pace that I'm supposed to. That's exactly right. And, and, and look, what's the worst that can happen? You nail it and you feel like a million bucks. And we learn that next time we can either add a mile or two, or, or, or maybe we can go a little bit faster depending on what type of stimulus we're trying to uh, accomplish. But, um, yeah, I, I would just say that's one of the biggest things I see. And, and, and again, I, I just think that's one of the, um, again, the, the things that amateurs just automatically, they don't think they can do the same amount of volume in a workout, but why? You're both training for 26.2 miles. Don't you need to be ready to run 26.2 miles? So <laughs> the volume on the hard sessions, I think, can can be the same. You just got to get the pace right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you see that. And it's just like if, if you're going too hard, you just can't do as much. But if you're doing it right um, or if you're even erring on the side of caution, you can do more than – you originally thought that you could. And it's like, that's a huge unlock, I think, for a, a lot of amateurs, but it's a really hard unlock for many of them as well. Yeah, I think Matt, Matt did a great job. Matt, do you remember Do you remember um, that process? Because I can remember workouts. And, and look, luckily I was able to watch you, which I think was an advantage. Because there were times that Matt certainly went faster than than prescribed but i really felt like he stayed in the spirit of the workout and i was then able to adjust next time remember that process mm-hmm. oh yeah i mean it, you know it's it's uh it's a theme in the book um and, and the, you know the funny thing is you know, uh, you know coming in for just uh, after years of being self-coached um 
you know, I wasn't accountable to anyone but myself. And so, um, you know, when I did workouts, um, you know, I felt like I got an A for execution on, on every single one. <laughs> it's like I, w- I was the coach I reported back to, you know, but for you, yes. I mean, I, um, yeah, I, I did not intend to be non-compliant, you know, in the workouts, but I, I, yeah, it, it was just a process. It was funny. It was just sort of like um, this sort of like slow convergence where you were figuring me out and I was figuring your process out. And yeah, by, by you know a few weeks in i felt like we were we were together <laughs> matt based on your prior experience self coaching and just being a student of the sport and really like eating up all of this knowledge and writing about it in, in terms of training and then like being boots on the ground you know with ben's group and following the program and seeing how things were done were there any big surprises for you in terms of of intensity and maybe how it was distributed like throughout the week or even the entire course of the training cycle relative to your your prior experience i remember one thing that jumped out to me pretty early is that um just the number of workouts that hit more than one intensity um so i think a lot of recreational runners it's like you know this is a workout at vo2 max effort this is a workout at half marathon pace and it's just like you, you pick you pick a single target and you focus on that. And there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but Ben made use of a lot of different like multi-pace, pace, multi-intensity types of workouts. And you know, they're fun. You know, they're actually a lot of fun because, you know, mm-hmm. you, I don't know, you, you do a bunch of, you know, mile repeats or 1K repeats at kind of a moderate pace. And then, boom, you're running eight times 200 almost flat out after that. It's like, cool. Um, so, you know, they were, they were engaging. I remember there, there was one workout I did. It was actually the one I got injured doing. <laughs> um, but it was so complex in structure that I actually wrote it out and laminated it and put it in my shorts pocket because I knew I wasn't going to be able to remember the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> move on to next topic in chapter in the book. It's about stride like a pro, finding your form. And I'm going to set this up with a common experience that I have certainly with the the groups that I coach and newer runners come into it they want to know like what's perfect running form or what is proper running form and I I appreciate that I mean I think it comes from a good place and and in my experience like there are a lot of running coaches at at all level who pay little to no attention to to form and it's just something you find your stride you figure it out for yourself. And I'd love to get just the the pro insight on this. And we could start with you, Ben, like in terms of mechanics. I mean, you said that's something you look at when trying to figure out how much volume, you know, someone can can handle. But, you know, in in your program, is there ever a time when you are consciously working on form with the group and trying to achieve a, a specific end? Or is it a, a case by case basis because of, you know, injury or trying to increase volume or something else that you're trying to achieve? No, we're working on form every week, uh, multiple times per week. I mean, they're, they're doing form drills, uh, the night before pretty much every hard workout that we do. Um, we're, we're doing hurdle mobility to 
open up the hip flexors, uh, make sure we're um, athletic and coordinated. We're doing uh, work in the gym that works on form. Um, we're, you know, plyometric work. Uh, of course, we're doing what what I think are commonly known as strides where, you know, we'll do a, a number of form drills and, and the form drills often, you know, isolate different parts of the gait cycle. And, and then, and then we, you know, put it all together in, in what is really the ultimate plyometric uh, uh, drill, which is, which is an actual stride where you're running really smooth and fast for, for a hundred meters or so. Um, so we're, we're working on it um, constantly, but as we say in run like a pro, what we're, what we're trying to do is, is maximize your efficiency. We want to be, we want each athlete, regardless of ability level, pro, amateur, we, we want you to be as efficient as you can be. Um, understanding that there's no perfect form and there's no, we're not trying to mimic someone else's form. We're trying to be as relaxed and smooth as, as you can be given your, your biomechanical limitations, if you want to call them that, or, or I would just say your, your biomechanical makeup. I mean, every, everybody's a little bit different and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Some of the best runners in the history of the world, world record holders have had form that to the to the to the naked eye at first glance seems a little you know goofy or wonky uh but when you really <laughs> study it it's quite efficient uh at least for them matt in terms of form and your stride during your time in flagstaff working with ben's group were there any light bulbs that went off for you or things that you worked on specifically that you might not have addressed before you know, when, when you ask me that question, the, the first thing that comes to mind is um, uh, a little piece of video that uh, Ben's wife, Jen, caught um, in, in the Chicago Marathon. Um, it's, uh, it was at mile 25. So I, I, I'm running the race. I've got a mile to go. I'm just, I'm closing the deal. You know, I know it at this point. And, you know, like most runners, I've always... I, like when I'm running, especially when I'm having a, a good workout or a good race, I feel like I look like a pro. <laughs> and then every time I actually am confronted with visual evidence of what I actually look like <laughs> running, I'm, I'm, I'm horrified. But in this snatch of video, you know, I'm tired. I've just run 25, 605 miles um, and I look different. I, I, I look, I don't look like Aaron Braun, who who went by the same point like half an hour in, in front of me, but I look different and 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 better. You know, my form did change. I, I I'd have that relaxed, smooth, efficient uh, style that that Ben was describing, and it didn't come from Ben like doing batting practice. You know, with me over the course of the thirteen weeks, like oh, you gotta you know you gotta get your knees up more. You got you know you gotta land on your midfoot instead of none of that it, it was just like the whole process the drills the strides um you know the training itself you know losing weight honestly was was a part of it like just the you know every little piece uh sort of it, that's the thing like everything you're doing is working on your form in, in a way um and, and it and it it, it just, so there was this kind of evolution that occurred i think that's a huge takeaway because i think there are a lot of runners i mean and the ones that 
like come to me like what drills can i do like it's just like this one specific thing like what drills can i do to improve my form and it's like well drills are are part of it um but i love how you both just talked about that and it's you know your form is is affected by a number of factors and it's really just taking a holistic approach to your training um that is going to allow you to find the form that works best for you and then i think matt you know something you just brought up I've seen this in my observations as a as a coach and just watching the sport. It's like the people who are, are racing well, and whether racing well for you is a sub 210 marathon or a sub 410 marathon, I mean, if they execute it well, they also, like you said, look the best, like at, at the end. Like there's there's like little variation between how they look at the end of especially a long race versus how they looked when they were fresh, you know, at the, at the very beginning, whereas on the flip side of that, you know, when someone's, you know, blown up or they've gone out way too hard, um, they're outrunning their, their fitness level, they're doing the skeleton dance, you know, <laughs> at, at the end. Um, and it's, you know, it's like, there's no drill in the world that's going to help Right. <laughs> like, make you run and run better at the end of a race in that standpoint it's like it's getting all the other things right too and i think that's just like a common misconception that many amateur athletes have so i'm glad that you both you know touched on that um in the time that we have remaining here i want to cover a few more things and they are related um recovery being a, a big one and i mean recovery is all the rage these days as as we know and i mean again you see it all the time and just like pop culture. It's like, well, what can I buy to, you know, recover better? And, you know, people will see, you know, on Instagram, they'll see, you know, their favorite pro, you know, kicking up on the couch with their Normatec boots on or whatever, or sitting like in the ice bath. And, you know, an average age group might be like, well, I can't, like, I can't do that. Um, well, it's like, well, maybe you can't, maybe you don't even in, need to, um, but, you know, you can get a good night's sleep. You can't eat, you know, really well. But I think there are a lot of just like misconceptions around recovery. Um, and Matt, we'll start with you on this one. Like from that standpoint, when you got to Flagstaff and you're spending time around these professional runners, I mean, you're doing the same workouts that that they're doing. Um, what were they doing from a recovery standpoint that, caught you by surprise or is different from how you had thought about it previously? Yeah, I, I would think that, you know, maybe a lot of people listening to this would assume that, you know, so I lived with, with one of the runners on the team, uh, Matt Yano. Um, so I, you know, I, I could see what he was doing at any given time of day. And yes, he had a pair of Normatec boots <laughs> um, and he used them. Um, but for the most part, what I saw him doing when he wasn't running was relaxing. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and he ate really well, uh, really, really well. Um, I had to up my game on, on diet quality uh, through his influence. And, and he napped, uh, you know, he, he, he slept, you know, nine hours at night and napped, you know, two hours in the afternoon. And those were the big three, honestly. I, I would actually, uh, I, would, I, I would toss in stress management as well, just sort of... Um, uh, I had an interesting conversation with Matt at one point where you know he, he was saying that he had a, he had a tendency to kind of obsess about his goals and, and just get locked in and almost like just too monastic. Um, and, and and Ben had encouraged him to like get out a little bit more, just you know find some balance, relax, get a little bit, a bit of you know um, variation in in your lifestyle. And I think you know, that's um, maybe so. If you're looking for surprises, that that was a piece, and, and maybe part of the reason I discovered I was the most uptight. Uh, person in the group during those 13 weeks it's just quite honestly like because that's the that's probably the least obvious thing just like being less stressed like every hour of every day that's a great boon to your recovery like not only are you happier um so just finding ways to 
just you know just sort of relax you know whatever you you might be doing uh whatever you know whether you you know it's work or you know uh parenting or whatever it is like if you can just um you know work um you know develop ways of of just managing your stress um that's you know you can you can plug that into any lifestyle ben how do you approach the topic of recovery with your professional athletes i mean for them it's part of their job to recover between workouts and they have you know probably more flexibility than the average person to you know sleep longer at night take a nap if they need to you know in the afternoon but i I'd, I'd love to understand like how you approach that conversation with them because i don't think like good recovery practices come natural to many people even professionals sometimes yeah i would say that I have come to understand that everyone is a little bit different. You know, Matt Yano, who, who Matt just described, um, you know, that's not possible <laughs> for some of the athletes, even on our team, uh, much less amateurs. Uh, Kellen Taylor has a daughter and three foster kids right now. Um, Steph Bruce has two rambunctious little boys. Uh, they, they have to be taken care of uh, 24-7. So... Alephine has has a, a little one year old, um, so these people can't can't nap two hours every afternoon. Um, they they can't always get nine hours of sleep. Their sleep is interrupted by their children, etc. Um, so, so I, in a way, I think they're more um, they're more relatable to 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 the amateur runner. And what I would say is, but they get it done. Uh, they find a way. And I think Matt made a good point, which is that you have to learn how to roll with the punches and, and you have to get in the recovery in the ways that you can get recovery in. So athletes like that, pros or amateurs, right, who don't have the luxury of, of quite as much free time. You've got to you got to double down on making sure that the car uh, has a smoothie in it. As soon as your long run is done, you're you're drinking that smoothie. You're recovering. Uh, you're fueling your body well. Um, you have to take advantage of of of, of a night that is uh, free and and that you can get a lot of sleep. You got to do that. Um, you you just have to do the best you can. And I th I think we know what that is, um, but we we sometimes. Um, we sometimes make excuses, uh, but I think what the pros do a good job of is they don't make excuses. They, they, they get the job done uh, in the best way that they can. I'll throw this to both of you. In your experience and opinion, what is the most underappreciated or undervalued recovery tool that any runner can take advantage of? I'll, I'll start. Um, I, I, I actually, and I, I say this in the book, I, I think it is actually managing your training load properly uh, because it's training that you're recovering from. <laughs> you know, there's nothing, there's no need for recovery if you're not working hard. And so actually just planning in a way where you're, 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 you're not just trying to train harder every week you know, than, than you did the week before, then it's sort of, it's just built, it's, it's built in, it's infused in the training, you know, just like, you know, uh, re recovery is the complement to, to training. So uh, just, you know, effective uh, planning and execution is really more than half the battle. Yeah, I, I, I would say something similar. We, we actually just made a change in our group uh, last week uh, related to recovery runs. And, and we, we now call them that we, you know, before, as Matt knows, when he was there, everything was just an easy run except for a hard workout. But 
what I've tried to do now, um, or what I've tried to introduce last week is that idea that, Hey, the day after a hard workout, that's not an easy run. That's a recovery run. That, mm-hmm. that actual, the actual motion, the moving of the legs is, is a way to recover from the previous day's workout. What, what you're doing is completely for the muscles and tendons and ligaments. And if you do that run too fast, if you turn that from a recovery run into depending on semantics, what you might call an aerobic run or an easy run, um, you're, you're not maximizing the recovery aspect of that run. So yeah, in a weird way, this is kind of becoming a theme here on this podcast, just like we talked about form drills. It's a, a lot of it is just, just the overall comprehensive uh, way that you run and, and you can, you can work on your form and workouts and strides and things. It's the same thing with recovery. We can talk about all the fancy tools you want and we can talk about sleep, but you've got to be recovering on those uh, days that, that you're running easy post-workout. Um, that's actually a great way to recover it. And I think in a lot of ways, amateurs could use a, a, to, to run on the day after. So many amateurs take the day off after any hard workout that they do. But I would make the argument that even an easy 20-minute or 30-minute jog is a better way to recover. Oh, I, I think it's huge. I mean, and I've, I've implemented that and I've implemented it a while ago with a lot of my athletes and, and I've made that distinction as well. And, and I use final surge. I know Ben, you do too, to plan your athletes. And I mean, that is actually an option for a run in there. Like you can, you can kind of, um, separate like recovery run from like a, an aerobic run. I've definitely taken advantage of that. And like in my description of the recovery run, I say, I want this to feel stupid slow. Stupid slow. Um, but then there's a but then there's a then there's a caveat in there too. It does not mean you can get sloppy because I think that's something, you know, a lot of runners will do too. Like, well, I can't run that slow because then I just get sloppy. I'm like, well, don't let yourself. Like you've got to actually pay attention to, you know, how you're moving. Cause if you get sloppy, then you get injured and then you're not, you know, recovering. And then we get into like this vicious cycle. But I think those are, you know, I think those are two two huge takeaways there. Um, so I appreciate that perspective from both of you. Um, tied in with this is, you know, is nutrition and diet. And I mean, you know, in, in popular culture and a lot of media, I mean, I remember this from my days at competitor. I mean, nutrition and diet were always our most like clicked on articles. And I mean, diet too is just very polarizing, like not even amongst runners, just, you know, in general, like, are you, you know, are you keto? Are you, you know, carp, whatever. Um, and it's interesting. You guys talk about this in the, in the book, like, you know, most professional runners aren't following some fad diet or some marketable diet. They are fueling their body to propel them for the training that they're trying to do so that they can recover. And generally it's just very, you know, balanced more than, you know, more than anything else. And it's, you know, adequate and torn should be adequate in terms of its like, you know, caloric density as well. But, you know, Ben, with your group and, and in terms of, of diet and, you know, for a lot of these athletes, like, you know, they can write off their food grocery shopping because, you know, it's, it's part of their job. Like they, they need to fuel themselves really well. Like, do you guys do any specific work like with nutritionists um, or is it on an individual basis talk about like how they can fuel themselves adequately for the type of training that you're doing and so that they're recovering from that work yeah there there are athletes that that we've we've pointed here and there uh and, and there are athletes that, that that do work with nutritionists um could probably do a little bit better job in, in some cases we've not done it 
as a group. It's more been on a case by case basis individually. And, and, you know, maybe it is best that way because we don't want to make a bigger deal out of it than it is. Uh, in a lot of ways, as you say, you, you know what to do. Um, you have to eat eat the rainbow. You have to, uh, you have to <laughs> calculate it about when you eat. Matt, Matt actually discusses this probably better, better than I, I do, or I can, but, uh, um, I, I do enjoy that chapter in our book because Matt does a fantastic job, uh, with his part of that, uh, chapter discussing nutrition in a very, uh, scientific way. He lays out a lot of things, but, uh, you know, what he's saying is kind of what we're saying throughout the whole book here's how the pros do it. Just do it like them. And it's not as complicated <laughs> as they think. Uh, man, am I getting that right? Yeah, totally. Um, uh, you know, I, I describe the, the pro way of eating and there is, you know, it's like, it's not like every pro runner eats exactly the same way, but it, there are some clear patterns and they are different from what a lot of, especially competitive recreational athletes are doing with the fad diets. And I, I describe it as a high quality version of normal. <laughs> I mean, that, that's just it. Like if you look at it from a distance, it's like, what's so special about that? And then you just, you know, you look up closer and it's like, oh, there's nothing processed. Right? That, that's about it. So yeah, you know, just Matt Yano, uh, I mentioned before, the, his way of eating. Uh, I, the one thing I'll add is that um, like, you know, even though like athletes like Matt eat like super clean, like I did not see him like stressing or worrying or getting into guilt cycles, you know, if he had a cookie or whatever. So like sometimes I just want to tell recreational runners, like my diet prescription for you is to spend 80% less time thinking about food. <laughs> I feel like the theme of this entire podcast could just be chill out. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I think, I think that's a lot of it. It's just, it's just chill out. I mean, I feel like we've touched on that in some, some way, shape or form and everything that we've discussed so far. Um, last bit, I want to be respectful of everyone's time is just mindset. And, you know, in the book, Ben, you write about this as, you know, the, the champion's mindset. And I think, every runner has to think of themselves as a champion, whether they're trying to make an Olympic team or they're just trying to reach their first finish line. What is the champion's mindset then in, in your mind? And how does that apply to you, whether you're an age group runner or you're a professional? Yeah. The, the champion's mindset is a term that, that my high school coach, Jim Lanier's um, uh, uses a lot. And we used in the book that he and I wrote together uh, years ago and I remember the story he uses. He, he talks about a runner on his team years ago that he really liked, uh, that he felt was the quintessential champion. And, and that particular athlete uh, was, was going through some injury troubles and was trying to come back and he was working really hard and kind of having a heart to heart with, with Jim. And, um, and he just told him, he said, coach, I just want to beat people. And it was so simple, such a simple line, but he just wanted to be competitive. He just wanted to, he just wanted to find out how good he can be, you know, and the injuries were bothering him because he wasn't able to answer that question. And I think mm -hmm. a champion, they just want to answer that question. They just want to see how good they can be. They don't get caught up in arbitrary times or what other people think or what, you know, what, what, what the, you know, in, in amateur runner terms, what the Boston qualifier is for their particular age group. They, 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 they just don't, they don't think that way. And a lot of people do. And a lot of people are wired that way, but a champion just wants to get the most out of themselves. And, um, they, they enjoy the, the, the hardest parts of training and racing that that's really a champion. Matt, from a mindset 
perspective. I mean, you went into your time training with Ben's group, knowing you were going to race the Chicago Marathon, and you wanted to see what was possible for yourself at the age of 46. And if things lined up, maybe knock down your personal best after 40-plus marathons. Did you feel like you made any major mindset shifts in the time that you spent around professional athletes just from being a part of that culture? You know, I, I think so. I, you know, I was all in, um, and I didn't, I didn't go in there, you know, thinking, oh, I'm the expert. I've written so many books, and I've got nothing to learn. I just, you know, I just want free shoes and, you know, someone to hand me my bottles during workouts. Like, so one of the things I did was, you know, I, I saw the same sports psychologist that a lot of the, the, uh, the pros on the team went to see, and I, you know, I, I just sponged it all up. And it's not like I had. Um, any sort of agenda of like, oh, I need to work on my confidence or whatever. It was just like, I was just, I was there to experience it all and then just kind of see what, what happens. And, you know, I remember in my last uh, session with, with, um, with Shannon, the, the sports psychologist, I remember saying like the problem I've had in, in my previous marathons is like the me who executes the race isn't the me who comes up with the race plan. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I've got a good plan. And then on race day, I just like crumple it up in a ball and do something different. And I, I told her, like, I want to do, I don't want to do that again. And so, you know, with, with, with Ben's help, cause he's the one who, you know, created my race plan and with, with Shannon's help, because, you know, she gave me the tools to make sure it was the same me um, who did the race as who prepared for it. Um, I really trusted myself throughout that race to a degree. Um, I, I don't think I had in, in any previous race. And it's a big thing that I saw in, in the pros on the team. It's just like a lot of self-trust. Um, you know, everyone's human and there are moments of doubt and, you know, wavering confidence, but I just sort of tried to soak up just you know, that, that notion, like, you know, the answers inside you, like there are a lot of voices in your head, but one of them you can trust. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there, there was definitely an evolution on the mindset side as well for me. Guys, this has been an awesome conversation. I feel like we could go on for another couple of hours. So we may have to do around two or three at some point, but Matt Fitzgerald, Ben Rosario, thank you both so much for coming on the morning shakeout podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Mario. All right, that's it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen into this one. Also, a big thank you to Tracksmith, Precision Fuel and Hydration, and the Wine Shine Half Marathon and 3.9 Miler for making it possible. Tracksmith is an independent running brand inspired by a deep love of the sport. Their spring collection is available right now and features staples that are thoughtfully designed for this season of hard training and racing. From their ultra-versatile session shorts cut from a silky soft stretch knit, which I just love, to merino wool tees that can handle a double, these pieces are built to work as hard as you do. You can get free shipping on your next order and support the Tracksmith Foundation in the month of April by using the code MARIO22 when you check out at tracksmith.com. 
Precision Fuel and Hydration has a wide range of tools and products to help you personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so that you can perform at your best in training and racing. Head to precisionfuelandhydration.com and use their free online sweat test and quick carb calculator to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs during training and racing. Then you can book a free one-on-one video consultation with someone on their team to refine your hydration and fueling strategy for your next race. And as a listener to the show, you can get 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products by using the code TMS22 when you check out at precisionfuelandhydration.com. Finally, the inaugural Wineshine Half Marathon and 3.9 Miler, which starts and finishes at the Silverado Resort and Spa in Napa, will be held on July 16th, 2022. Cool mornings, great running conditions. You will not have a better experience than at the Wineshine Half Marathon and 3.9 Miler. Registration is now open at wineshinehalfmarathon.org. Enter the code MARIO, that's my name, all capital letters, M-A-R-I-O, when you check out and get $15 off your registration. Before we wrap this one up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford at BearsRecords.com. He's produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. Also, thank you to Chris Douglas for being my right-hand man and handling sponsorship sales, and Jeffrey Stern for the social media assistance. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys play key roles in helping keep this ship afloat. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter, also called The Morning Shakeout, at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you will get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading reading and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. That's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>